Hi, y'all. It's Jinx here, and I'm so excited because our special guest, Guy Branham, today took me on a journey. It's a wonderful conversation, and I can't wait for you to hear it. So stay tuned for Hi, Jinx. Forever. Dog. Hello everyone, I'm Jinx Monsoon, and welcome to my podcast, Hi Jinx, where I, an internationally tolerated drag superstar, interview many compelling and fascinating people and ask them how they became who they are and how they started doing what they do so well. Today, our guest is none other than Guy Branham. Hello, Guy. How are you? <laughs> Hello, Jinx. I'm doing very well. How are you? You know, I am... Um... I, my go-to phrase has been can't complain because <laughs> I would love to complain, but I really can't. So, <laughs> I, Like understanding and coping with the imposed late quarantine mental illness has been very much a journey for me. Like how much of this is me and how much is everybody going through the same thing? Mm-hmm. And how much do we just have to pretend everything's fine? <laughs> I know, um, you know, it's been brought up a few times, but we have collectively experienced trauma together now. And that's something we're all going to have to deal with for years to come or possibly for the rest of our lives. (laughs) (laughs) What a joy that is, though, to have something shared um, across the whole world. (laughs) You know, there's so few instances of that. No, it's very true. And for such a long time, it was like, oh, what defines me? Um, The societal decay, but economic, like, booms of the 90s? Like, what (laughs) what did we have to say that we had gone through? I mean, yeah, I was going to say something terrible, but I'm not going to say it now. (laughs) Maybe it'll just come up naturally later. (laughs) Yes. A little something from the beginning of the millennium that we sure were all pretty dramatic about. Um, I, I, you know, I do count my blessings that as an entertainer, you know, as I watched all my gigs disappear, I think I had one day of licking my wounds before I realized I can still work from home. I can still do things. Um, you, uh, you, you're a writer, you're a stand-up comedian. Um, how has your career shifted because of the pandemic? Well, it's really an interesting situation because I, you know, about half of my career is writing, about half of it is like touring and performing. And the touring and performing just sort of disappeared. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I am so lucky that I've been able to have pretty stable writing jobs the whole time. And so I was pretty okay. It did change the flow of my life in ways that were good and bad. But my friends who were touring comics, who live off of touring comedy, um, it's been terribly, terribly rough for them. And there came a time about halfway through when I was like just seeing on Twitter and realizing, because you have the government step up with these things that are supposed to solve this problem. Yeah. And things like, here's a check that just goes to everybody is a way that like hits everybody. Yeah. But I just hit this point of like, 
most drag queens aren't going to apply for a PPP loan. Yeah. Like, most drag queens aren't going to say, hey, like, Department of Commerce. <laughs> <laughs> like, here are my fastidiously well-kept records. Oh, yeah. Can you make me whole for, like, what I'm missing out on? And it it really was, I don't know, I was just like, more people need to be stepping up to help other people with yeah. stuff like that right now. Because a lot of this stuff isn't getting where it needs to go. Yeah. I mean, you know, let's face it. Lots of drag work is under the table. You know, Mm -hmm. like um, when I worked at gay bars before Drag Race, before drag was legitimized um, the way that it is today and before you could really support yourself as a drag queen. I mean, going on TV helps, but there are, um, you know, there were a handful of queens who did it before Drag Race, and now there are tons of queens who haven't been on Drag Race, but who have found a career in drag and support themselves with drag. But that said, the industry is still its weird own thing, you know? So much of it's under the table, so so much of it's you're paid in cash or in tips, how do you explain that to the government? Yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> have Have you ever done, like, a week at a comedy club or anything like that? No, I haven't. <laughs> There's this weird ritual where <laughs> you have to, after your last show, wait for the club owner to cut you a check. Mm. You have to be, like, taken up into the club owner's weird, gross office. And it's just one of those situations where, like, I'm, like, a cis man... <laughs> And I'm like, this is not okay. And just wondering how many women or like or non-binary people have been in that situation where it's like, oh, I have to go to the sexual violence den to yeah. wait. And then and then there's also just sort of like a trope in stand-up comedy of they cut you a check that is for the wrong amount and just say you didn't bring in enough people oh. or whatever it is and just sort of like an on-site in-the-moment negotiation like that that is truly terrifying. And there there are there are ways that having the benefit of like <laughs> bougie cash receipts like is a privilege that we yes. don't acknowledge enough. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, I have, I have been dicked around so much. There's this... You know, the trope of the cigar smoking producer or bar owner who's like, get on out there and make me some money, toots. You know, that's still very well and alive. And, you know, there's no way to compare being a drag queen to being um, a female person. You know, it's a very different thing. But I do feel that within the queer community, when you are a drag queen... Um, in the eyes of these male producers and b- bar owners, you have forfeited your male privilege, you know, and I've been treated by what I can only imagine is very similar to like actresses in the 1940s, you know, like <laughs> yes. I have been slapped on the ass as I go out on stage to like make this producer money. And it, I think they think that's what we want. I think they think it's affirming of our femininity or something, but it's not what I want. And I, I, I have this very specific memory. I won't name the club. They're out of business anyway. Anyway. <laughs> Um, But it was a horrible, horrible experience where Alaska and I did a gig together at this club and we we our show was done at around 1 a.m. And the club owners were really wanting us to stay and mingle with the crowd because that meant the crowd would stay longer. So but we had. 
to get up at 6 a.m. and go, you know, to the next gig. But we had to wait until 4 a.m. for these club owners to pay us. And they did that on purpose so that we would stay and, and keep drumming up their alcohol sales. And when the club was closed and we still hadn't been paid... Alaska, my hero that night, literally walked to the office and kicked the door open and demanded our money. And then we got the hell out of there. And that's just not uncommon in the in the drag world. You know, you really and it's not it's not okay, but it is also like something that I've always known. So I haven't really reflected on it too much until I started producing my own work and started like becoming a little bit more of a CEO of a small business rather than just a a, a performer, you know? <laughs> well, there's the weird way that because, you know, gayness was illegal until not long ago. So many of our businesses, so much of our stuff had this sort of like off the table, under the records kind of feel. And the thing is, is we do so frequently nostalgically look back to those magical times when, you know, Bank of America wasn't putting rainbows on things. <laughs> yeah. But also, there are protections that come with that going more mainstream. And all I'm saying is, at some point in time, offline, we need to have a conversation about who's drawing up your contracts and how to put in things <laughs> like... If we stay for a couple of hours afterwards, there's already a set rate for how much we're getting for that. Yeah, I mean, there are those things in in our contracts. And luckily, you know, um, luckily the industry has come so far for drag queens um, and uh, you can't. You can't ignore drag uh, drag races contribution to where the industry's at now versus where it used to be. But, um, you know, oftentimes we go out on tour, we have an assistant maybe, but, you know, we have to go out and, and, and fight for ourselves. And it's like you can bring up the contract to these bar owners, but you also still want to get your money. You know, yep. <laughs> you also yep. don't want to leave the bar until you've been paid out, because then it, if you don't leave with the cash in hand, who knows what's going to happen next? So the the entertainment industry is flawed. And that is just how it is. And it's not the way it should be, but it, we are, we, we make strides every day. But I think the more that people openly talk about it, and that's one benefit of social media and, and podcasts and stuff like this is we're, we have power now where we didn't before. Um, I'm, you know, we've barely begun and we're already talking about such deep issues. <laughs> we are entering a new age of mindfulness and consciousness that has definitely impacted, I think, the way that we approach comedy for mm -hmm. for those who wish to be mindful and conscious, you know? Yeah. And I've heard comedians for a while now, I've heard comedians complain about like, oh, we can't tell jokes anymore. And really what they're complaining about is we can't tell jokes that tear people down anymore. And yeah. I, I hear a lot of the comics that I really respect say, if you can't tell a joke without tearing people down, then, you know, find a new job. Because, like, you should be able to be funny without having to um, punch down at marginalized communities. Um, that's my thought, you know. <laughs> but there, how, there, how have you navigated that as a comedian? The thing is, is like... Part of it is that you come up and you admire people and you're trying to emulate what they're doing. Um, and so, so much of the comedy that I 
like was raised on was that kind of comedy that went after people. At, at, at the same time, what it comes down to is for a very long time, there were a lot of people who weren't represented on stage mm-hmm. and didn't feel like they had the right to an opinion in the audience. Mm-hmm. And jokes of that sort never really appealed to me because I did try to think about other people and how my jokes sounded to them. Um, and there are ways that I have erred in that path, but when people told me, oh, I, I didn't care for that, I've tried to think critically about what they were saying. And the thing is, is there's always been jokes that you couldn't tell. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just that in 1982, it was a joke about your period. Yeah. In 1995, it was getting up on stage and saying, uh, like, I'm gay, yeah. <laughs> you know, in an honest way. Um, like, and honestly, I would say it was worse in 2006 than it was in 1995 or 1997. We had great people like Margaret Gomez back then. But the the thing is, is that there's always been, it just comes down to you're giving stuff to an audience and what these guys like Jerry Seinfeld or whatever are complaining about is, uh, women and others in the audience used to know to keep quiet. Mm. Like I have, I have watched an audience where all of the men were laughing and none of the women were laughing and none of the men noticed. I've never seen an audience where all of the women were laughing and none of the men, because if a group of people were being that alienated, like women are raised to be empathetic enough to notice. Like I remember being at a show like 10 years ago in New York and everyone who got up on stage who was a straight guy said the word faggot. Yeah. And in the audience, I saw two faggots, like beautiful, delightful gay boys in New York who were being repeatedly told, you're not welcome here. This is a place where we talk shit about you. And I had to realize my audience, the people who should be able to come to this space and enjoy me are being told that they are not welcome here. This is a problem. And the thing is, is we've gotten to a point where if you say something that is fundamentally destructive towards somebody, a lot lot more people feel the strength to get up and walk out, Mm -hmm. to get up and say, hey, stop. Mm -hmm. Um, And like a good comedian needs to know how to have that not happen to their show. Yeah. Look, there are also crazy bad hecklers and there are some people who are going to overreact to something for the sake of, you know, there are always drama queens. Mm -hmm. But also, I think we can learn to be mature enough people to be able to deal with that and to sort of handle it. And if you're a good comedian, like, fucking know your audience. Yeah. You know, be able to deal with your audience. Yeah. Like, you know, San Francisco or Brooklyn or Naples, Florida are not the the same place. Yeah. But the thing is, it's like... You know, everyone who's bitching is a white guy who's not used to having to deal with Brooklyn or San Francisco. Like, Nicole Byer performed in Naples, Florida, two weeks after me. And it was a terrible audience full of old white people. And she didn't complain to anyone but me. She just texted me and was like, weren't you here two year, two weeks ago? And I was like, yes. And she was like, how the fuck did you survive here? And I was like, yes, because... We understand that if an audience has like more than three Korean War veterans in it, <laughs> they're probably not going to want to listen to stories about me eating eggs.
typically I'm at comedy shows where the performers are queer. You know, mm -hmm. I I think there's a certain amount of like when when I use the term visibly queer. Um, when you are visibly queer and when it is really difficult for you to blend in, you're just typically not going to go to places where you feel less safe. So I typically go to places, I like, I I typically go to queer establishments because that's where I'm, I feel safe to laugh out loud, you know? <laughs> yeah. And I have been to shows where, you know, and, you know, I'm, admitting that like most of the performers were probably queer but i've been able to laugh at myself but you can just feel the difference you can it's not something you can pinpoint but you can feel the difference of someone who is telling a joke that we all can relate to even if it's a little edgy even if it's politically incorrect but it's something we all can think and relate to versus someone making a community the butt of a joke well, that's the hard thing about this whole conversation is, yes, comedy should be transgressive and take you into mm -hmm. territory you're not comfortable with. I just don't know that telling a joke that rests on a 80-year-old stereotype about a certain type of people is transgressive for a reason that's interesting. Yes. You know? And, and the thing is, is, like, the best thing about the smart, good, queer audiences that are out there. Like, you know, I do think stand-up comedy is changing. There are so many, like, great, awesome voices out there. Like, your frequent collaborator, Nick Sahoya, who I'm a mm -hmm. big fan of. Or, you know, like, Bowen on SNL. Or all of the good shit that's been going on in Brooklyn for the past 10 years. Like, it does create audiences who are ready to be poked at and ready to be challenged. Um, but... That's like, and that's like, it's about us growing up as queer people. It's about yeah. us knowing that we exist in a society where we're safe and we have a voice. Yeah. I, I just ask myself in my own work, you know, I, I never really punched down. There were times where I pushed the envelope more, you know, mm -hmm. than I do today. And it's a conscious choice that I make today to be mindful, you know. And a big part of it is just I cannot live with the guilt of knowing that I hurt someone's feelings. You know, I can have a joke that I really, really like, but the moment I know that it's hurt someone... I can never say it again because I can't live with that guilt. And I used to, you know, when I would bring up a big group of people for like birthdays or bachelorette parties or something, as they were walking back to the audience, I would say like, um, and thank you to that random, uh, random assortment of nameless prostitutes that joined me on stage. <laughs> I thought that was hilarious. And then one yeah. time this person wrote to me on Facebook, and this is well before Drag Race, and mm -hmm. said, I was there that night. Uh, you know, I brought all these people who were the volunteers for um, this charity, uh, this Oscar party that was raising money for charity. And he pointed out to me, he's like, I may have been in a Speedo and I may have been painted gold, but I'm not a nameless prostitute. I was someone who was um, volunteering my time for this charity and for this mm -hmm. event. And I just didn't appreciate being called a nameless prostitute. And I was like, this person's being a little sensitive and also I can never use that joke again because I, I just can't live with the guilt of hurting someone. <laughs> well, is that, that is that thing, that sort of like calculus, that judgment call that you have to make. Like, I don't necessarily think like, 
sexualized dehumanization uh, like is not as real of an issue for cis men as it is yeah. for women and trans people. And so like in that situation, I'm going to have to ask myself, how much is this a valid criticism and how much is this is male ego being annoyed for yes. having applied to him? What is so frequently that uh, applied to women? Um, and I, you know, but like you're saying, the vast majority of the time, I don't want to go into the rough territory if I don't have to. Yeah. Because I like, I want to choose my battles. Like the thing is, is like, I want to choose my battles and know precisely when and how I am making an audience awkward. Yeah. And if, if there are ways that I am make, chilling somebody's soul, making somebody feel like they're, they can't be completely present, not for the reason I want them to, but for some other reason, I'm going to try to switch around the joke. Yeah. So that, because I do have things that I want you to feel weird about, but they're my things. Yes. Yes. That's very, that's very <laughs> well said. I, um, I, I just started asking myself, you know, I don't know how long ago, but it's like the question I ask myself anytime I'm feeling kind of like iffy about a joke and it's just is this part of the problem or is this part of the solution? Is Mm -hmm. this joke transgressive in an effort to make things better? Or is this joke just kind of flippantly bringing up something shitty with no hope of like helping the problem, you know? (laughs) Right. And it's also a joke. It's something that you're breezing through, you're pushing through and your audience isn't thinking about in as complex a way as you have. So there are times when an audience will, will just be cold on something and I have to be like, oh, God, maybe this isn't a joke that I should tell. Yeah. And there are times when an audience, a percentage of the time, is cold on something because I've gone close to what they think is one of the third rails. But, like, it's a joke I have thought about enough that I'm, like, I'm comfortable with that. I'm yeah. comfortable with the audience not knowing how they react to it. Yeah. I had to, I think, um, where I've asked myself the most questions is... Um, you know, I, I'm very firmly pro-slut, pro-sex work, pro-sex liberation. Um, mm-hmm. And then there are people in my audience who just aren't very sexual people. And to talk about yeah. sex at all makes them uncomfortable. And mm-hmm. so I'm like, I can kind of suss out the room. I can kind of feel the room. And it's like, if these people don't want to hear me talking about having a condom lost up my butt, like maybe I... Um, pull back a little bit, but I'm not going to completely, you know, change something I believe in to cater to um, just kind of conditioned uncomfortability about talking about sex. Because that is something that like the dominant culture has told us isn't something to be discussed. And we're doing brave hard work by talking about it. Um, That doesn't seem brave or hard. (laughs) Um, Clearly if, it had been harder, maybe it wouldn't have gotten lost. Um, but um, one time I got an email from uh, this woman who had seen me um, at a show telling me I should quit comedy <laughs> um, because I had made her very uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And I, like, of course Googled this person. She had a master's degree in art history from Harvard. Um, and I was just sort of like, how dare you tell me to quit comedy? This is how I pay for my life. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I, my response to her was just like, I, I clearly made you feel something. Mm-hmm. So like, maybe I'm, I'm, I'm not going to quit, but like, I, I am proud that I made you feel something. 
Um, so let's both try to learn from this. Um, you know, I, like, we shouldn't be doing obvious things. We should do things that people feel. And it's not always going to be perfect and right. But I think you can also just, there's so much that can be done by just starting off from a point of saying, like, my goal is not to perpetuate the dehumanization that a yeah. lot of people have had to deal with from, like, every source around them. Yeah. You know, the past week is, like, a good example of the way trite little jokes that dehumanize sex workers, yeah. Asian people, and women can line up to some dude thinking that it is perfectly appropriate for him to go kill a yes. people. Yes. Um, I, I, I... It's, you know, it's just... um where we're where we're at it's the conversation we're having and we're not going to figure it out overnight but i think there are people in the industry willing to have the conversation and willing to find what's going to make things better and there are people who are just like i shouldn't have to worry about how other people feel and just to like circle back like you know i feel very convicted about talking about sexuality in a in a in a liberated way at the same time i'm also more aware that there are people who have trauma around sex there are people who um who identify as asexual and just aren't going to relate to those stories as much and it's like kind of finding the difference between um it's not about removing the jokes entirely, but just remember that like there are all kinds of people in your audience and not one of the catering to the like the one one person, <laughs> but like just remembering that they're out there and maybe like I don't have to drill it as hard and maybe I don't have to be as obstinate in my in my joke telling, you know? <laughs> well, the thing is, is so much of stand up comedy is being in charge. And I think that for such a long time, people had a very clear idea of what that meant. Mm. And one of the best things that ever happened to me was one time I was doing a show, I was crowd working and I asked somebody's name and uh, she responded to me in a relatively low voice and said that um, her name was Grace. And I hearing her voice assumed that it was a dude who was fucking with me. Mm, mm. Um, And then was like, Hey guy, 45 minutes ago when you were out in the lobby, you saw this trans lady instead of, like, because normally, when when you take it to be heckler, you're like, I have to reimpose order by laying into this person. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then it was just like, no, this person just told me their name and their gender. Let's just keep moving along and do yeah. our job. And I changed the person's name uh, for the sake of not, like, identifying them. But the thing is, it's a comedian. Her name was Olivia. It was like a, co- a comedian, Olivia Hader, who's so funny. Um And it was just sort of like, oh, I could have started off my relationship with a colleague by being a complete asshole to her. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And aren't I lucky that I had the sense of mind to not be a dickbag about that? I, um, I have this story and I'll try to keep it succinct, but in my show, The Vaudevillians, I have for a long time had this bit in the show where I pull up um, a a guy from the audience. It can only be a guy. I make a joke about, you know, it's all very tongue in cheek, but you know, it's about the fact that men can stand to be exploited for a second, you know, like (laughs) I'm going to bring you up on stage and I'm going to tease you. And, and, you know, it's pretty clear, like what's going to happen when you come up on stage with me and that character, Kitty Whitless is especially um, foul mouthed and, and horrible. Um, Mm -hmm. 
And so I felt very convicted. Like, I'm going to bring straight guys up on stage and tease them because they should be able to handle this. And for, for, mm-hmm. ten, for 10 minutes, let, let this straight guy be the one <laughs> we're teasing, you know? And this one time I pull a guy up on stage and I gave him the whole, you know, the whole nine yards, the whole, the works, you know, he ended up shirtless. I was doing a stand up in a, a, a headstand in his crotch and, mm-hmm. um, the audience loved it. The, the guy seemed to love it. The whole thing was a good time. Then after the show, the guy and his dad are waiting for me <laughs> and the dad tells me, we ca- we drove four hours into the city. This is Sydney, Australia. We drove four hours into the city beca- because he had an appointment with his therapist for his extreme social anxiety. <laughs> <laughs> and you pulled him up on stage and took his shirt off and, and did a headstand in his crotch. And I was so worried, but he ended up really enjoying it. And I thought, how lucky I am that this person actually found the experience very cathartic. And but how easily that could have just been the worst day of that person's life. And I kind of said then and there, like, maybe this isn't as important to my act as I once thought it was. (laughs) I mean, that's, that's so interesting, because you do have to like you do have to ask what am I getting my, myself into here mm-hmm. with this bit and what is it worth? And I think part of it is just us as a society being better about people being able to articulate their boundaries mm-hmm. and then us being able to respect boundaries as people, mm. but as performers and like as, pr- as transgressive performers and as queer performers, because part of our job as queer performers is to make things a little more magical and a little more sexual (laughs) and take people outside of their comfort zones. And I think understanding how to do that in a way where you're also letting people know that if they express their boundaries, those boundaries will be respected. Yes. You know, um, is important. And I think one of the fun things about having done this so long is like, I understand the straight guy who's not going to be it's not going to be fun to push his boundaries mm-hmm. and the ones who are the lucky thing about straight guys is they're so used to being able to articulate anything that most of the time they'll just be a dick bag about about the situation and you can lay into them with no sense of yeah. guilt <laughs> yeah exactly we have yet to even discuss your body of work so thank you so much for this very vivid conversation but let's let's sing your praises a little bit You you worked on um, uh, Chelsea Handler's show for a long time. Yep. You um, worked on the Mindy Project, um, yes. and then you had your own show, uh, talk show, the Game Show. Yes, um, I'm sure. I, I myself included. Um, lots of people have ideas of what writers' rooms look like. Um, are they as glamorous as your average <laughs> muggle would assume? Do you just go into a room with a bunch of funny people and you just sit around cracking each other up, or w- what? What is the writers' room like? One of the things I love most about television is knowing that every cast of extremely attractive people, their lives are being governed by a council of mostly Jews who just eat lunch constantly. Um, but, um, I mean, it is at its best, like, at its worst, it's 
10 people who hate each other sitting around the table being mad at each other. And like, at its best, it is making jokes with your friends and telling stories and kind of getting the job done. And I really do like and appreciate all of those bosses I have had who really understand the importance of telling stories and just sort of, and you know, sometimes you have a joke and it cannot fit into the story, Mm -hmm. but you just want to tell that joke and the joke is just for the room, but it keeps everybody in a good enough mood that they keep going. And I think I, I have several really good friends who are drama writers and I legitimately don't understand what they do. (laughs) Um, But with comedy writing, there is something so magical and special because sort of on a feature or when you're coming up with something that's your own idea you were just doing it alone or with a partner. And there's so much benefit that comes from everybody shoving their head into a question or a problem. One thing I have to ask you is, I I think I was living in New York and didn't have cable when your season of Drag Race came out. So Mm -hmm. like a year later, I watched it. I like bought it on Amazon or something. And I, I watched two seasons I had missed. And I fell in love with you. And then I started watching Monsoon season Mm -hmm. and it was the funniest thing I had ever seen and didn't even realize that Nick was somebody I had like exchanged emails with at that (laughs) point in time. I like hunted down this adorable little so funny boy and he was like, yes, we've emailed before. I was like, oh. (laughs) Um, But how, how, because I'm a bad collaborator (laughs) Um, when I'm not being paid by a multinational corporation, when I'm being paid by a multinational corporation, I'm great. (laughs) Um, but how did you how did that process work for the two of you guys? Did you were you with each other while somebody was on a computer or did you bat ideas around and then somebody turned it into a script? Um, you know, our very first iterations and for anyone listening who who doesn't know what we're talking about, my collaborator Nick Sohoya and I um had this on again off again web series called Monsoon Season, which I used to describe as like um a mix between It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia and I Love Lucy. You know, it was like... It's so funny. It's so funny. <laughs> and we used to have it all up on funnyordie.com and then they reformatted and now yeah. um, now I don't even know where it is. But, um, you know, it started out as fully as improv and then we started scripting things and we took turns. One of us would write the script and then the other one would direct the episode. Mm-hmm. And we we did this so sporadically throughout our lives. Um, but I've actually, I very, I, no, I, I have one show that I wrote for me alone. And then everything mm-hmm. else I've done in my career has been a collaboration. And even that mm-hmm. one show that I wrote for myself um, Nick helped me write it. I I typically work wonderfully when it's me and one other person. I've never mm-hmm. had to really work in a big group. Um, and I, the few times I've like workshopped original works, um, I do so much of the talking that then I feel guilty that like, <laughs> you know, I robbed the experience from someone else. But um, well, that that really is the magic of writers' rooms is figuring out how to get it like it's like 10 way double dutch where it's like when am i supposed to hop in when am i supposed to tell jokes and when it is firing on all cylinders it's that real joy of everybody just being so funny and everybody feeling expressed and heard and it's it's a 
there are worse jobs. Yeah. Uh, and then also, when there's not a pandemic, you get to order free lunch every day. <laughs> and most of your day is just spent ordering lunch and then waiting for lunch and then talking <laughs> about lunch. That's definitely a big part of mine and Dela's writing process is the, um, the ordering food and uh, then waiting on the food and then pausing to eat the food. Um, <laughs> it's like that's what, um, that's what bookends all of our writing sessions. And if it weren't for food... We would just drive our, ourselves crazy for hours. But um, yeah, I find collaborating a lot of fun because um, I find that my best work and my most satisfying work and my most successful work is um, I when I'm working with someone and we both say we're not going to care about pleasing a broad audience. We're going to do what we find funny and we're going to find a niche audience who who finds the same things funny and it might be a smaller audience, but they're going to laugh that much harder because we are writing for people who find this kind of stuff funny, you know? Um, so I think the broadest I've ever had to try to write was, was the holiday film with Dela and it's still very, very uh, eclectic. <laughs> Well, I mean, drag is such an important sort of, like, vehicle for intergenerational communication of culture within the queer community that there are the game of just sort of, like, picking up pieces of culture and integrating them into your vernacular and then making somebody else figure out what Tina bring me the axe or boots means. Yeah. Like, we're doing the work of teaching the children. Like, the children will want to know. If the children ever get so full of themselves that they aren't figuring out what Tina bring me the axe means, like, truly that will be the day that homosexuality has died. Yeah. I, I work with a 19-year-old videographer right now. Um... um now that I'm, you know, kind of stuck in Portland and uh, it's I, I, I've been giving him a queer education, you know, telling him what movies he he has to watch to continue to work with me. And at the same time, he's like, like telling me like, oh, um, these jokes are too old or too played out. You know, like there were times where we'd be filming together and I'd say a joke and I'd be like, oh, do you not get it? And he goes, no, I get it. It's just I've heard it like a hundred thousand times. So <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. Um, Don't let them get too smug. What are <laughs> uh, what what films can can I just get a smattering of films that you have been forced to recommend to this gentleman? Um, I had him watch Sunset Boulevard recently because I um because I want to do a parody because that's essentially you know I met this this young person who's interested in being a, a director and editor and I was like how about you help me stay relevant you know yes yes um, so Sunset Boulevard was one Great Gardens was another um, um, he he's he's a comic brilliant like he's a comic idiot savant like he knows comedy better than so many people i've met but he also is 19 years old and has only seen so much of the the queer standards you know should you do should you do a snatch game masterclass <laughs> you should do a snap I, I want just 45 minutes of you on video explaining to aspiring young queens <laughs> what to do and what not to do because i feel like there have been Truly inspired and brilliant choices. Like your little Edie, foremost, foremost amongst them, um, was it who did Maggie Smith? 
Was Dayla. that Dayla? Dayla, yeah. Yes. I mean, fucking brilliant fucking... Like, being able to find a comic character who is identifiable but has space that they can work in mm-hmm. is so hard, and you see so many of these people just fall on their fucking faces. I guess this is all just ramp up to me saying, who's gonna do Fran Lebowitz? <laughs> like, it's... It's just hanging right there. Yeah, yeah. My my videographer actually wrote a sketch for me to do a Fan, Fran Lebowitz um, impersonation, and we have yet Ugh. to film it, but it's it's on the docket. <laughs> it's on the docket. You're still having I'm... your suit tailored. <laughs> but I'm really pushing the Sunset Boulevard angle, and um, we're writing those sketches right now. But one thing I, I was excited to talk to you about um, is that... When we first were introduced to queer characters in mainstream media, um, it was very archetypal. It was very what was palatable. You know, it was um, very cis, white, heteronormative, you know. That's how we were introduced to queer people on television. I remember... You know, none of that seemed like a problem to me because I was just excited that there were queer characters on television. You know, absolutely. I was just excited that there were queer characters that were being celebrated and not just the butt of a joke, you know? Yeah. But um, we've come a long way since then. We still have a lot of, of work to do. We still have a lot of um, representation that um, <laughs> we'd all like to see more of. Um as someone who does not fit into the mold of what was once palatable, you know, how have you found working in the industry as as a larger person, as as an older person, as a I'm, I'm not trying to shade you in any way, but like No, it's <laughs> it's just true, Jinx, because part of the problem is is that when I was younger, they didn't need me. You mm. know, when I was younger, there wasn't really space for queer people. And mm-hmm. if they were going to have, like, a gay man on, he was going to have the perfectest of abs. Yeah. So the industry having space for me has come along at this point in time. It's, it's just like um, uh, Leslie Jones on SNL being 47 when she broke. It's like, well, yeah, you didn't give Black women a break for 20 years. Yeah. That's what's going to happen. And, you know, I, I, it is a little bit frustrating um, to, to have to deal with that. Um, but it is also, <laughs> it's the product of hard work. And one of the things I love about stand-up is that it's given me a vehicle to f- explain to people how they should deal with me being on stage. You know, when, <laughs> yes. when people have a limited construction of what gay is, and I also think that that limited construction of gay, um, my friend Sarah Kessler just wrote a really good article, I forget what journal it's in, uh, but what she called um, butch middlebrow, basically about the the identity of the butch women that we have been seeing in scripted television and the way that they sort of fit within these very, like, significant constraints. And yes, it is better than just sort of like, um, you know, the, the femme thin L word magic that we saw, you know, before, but it still is limiting to the, uh, to the identity. Um, you know, it's why I've had to write. It's why I've had to do things where I created stuff for myself. And I think that there are ways that I... Ha- so I I sometimes have to get mad at my own imagination <laughs> for not creating spaces for me within stories mm. as readily as I do 
the adorable little twink assistant. Or sometimes being frustrated by stuff like, <laughs> like, you know, my friend Lindy has a show that is about being a fat woman. We're talking about Lindy West, Lindy West and Shrill. Yes, uh, yes, which is a show mm-hmm. that has had space for a bunch of the adorable little twenty-something gay boys I know to be on it, but has not had a space or imagination to have me on it. <laughs> and you know, stuff like that is frustrating. And I think part, like I was saying before, I think part of it is straight people want reassurances about the yes. gay people yes. on camera without having to worry about what their lives are like. Like, you know, we're never going to learn this person's story. So if he has pecs that tell us he's okay, then he's okay. You know? (laughs) That's that's really fascinating. Yeah. And I think it's just been, it's been really wonderful, the people who have worked with me and said, oh, we want you to be in this. We want you to be part of this. Like, you know, fucking Ivan Reitman, who directed Ghostbusters, was directing a movie 10 years ago and he was like, let's make one of the girls guy. And, you know, I didn't like taking a job from an actress, but it was it was nice and exciting. Or like, you know, it's why a disproportionate number of the characters that I have played are named Guy. <laughs> because uh, a lot of the time, I'm not what people are thinking of in the abstract, mm-hmm. but in the specific, they know that I can get the job done. Yeah. And... But it is also interesting the way stuff like that keeps us out of the loop. When you fit the types, you acquire the skill set to be able to do the job. And when you are unique and specific, you get sidelined. And, you know, I was just working on on a job where there was a role that came up that required an older queer person with some other specificities. And they were like, well, we can't find anyone. And I was like, fuck you, no. I will find you people. There are forgotten people. Like, this myth of meritocracy is in everyone's ears. This idea that the best people have written to the, risen to the top, and that's all straight, cis, white people who fit within, like, our standards of beauty. And remembering that, like, there are a lot of great people out there who aren't that. And I think one of the great things about drag is like, who the fuck knew that they needed Lawrence Cheney? Who the fuck (laughs) knew that they needed Jinx Monsoon? And you fucking showed up on people's TVs and you were like, look at this. Oh, yeah. And that's just what I have tried to do. Yeah, I feel like, you know, I, I, as an actor myself, I've seen a lot more roles written for gender nonconforming people, gender nonbinary people drag queens and what is continuing to frustrate me is seeing that these roles are written for us for us and then in the end they go to a cis white pretty boy who's Mm -hmm. never done drag a day in his life who Mm -hmm. can play the role but is not going to learn in a day what it actually means to be a drag queen Um, and and then non-binary people who you know still are just conventionally attractive, you know? Mm-hmm. I like, I have this fear every time I'm doing an audition, like I have to paint on eyebrows because even though it is true for many non-conforming people, especially non-conforming people who do drag, that we just don't have eyebrows. It's because yeah. that's a huge time saver in our career, but I'm not going to 
audition without eyebrows on because I know that's going to be jarring <laughs> and yeah. and I I want to get my foot in the door. So it's this funny place we're at right now where we're seeing more representation, but we're seeing only like a, you know, like a very small example of that representation. It is, it is cool and terrible that I get to be on many sides of the story and I do try to do what I can. Like there was a situation a while ago when uh, we were casting a trans or non-binary character and like a lot of the names that were brought up were like the pretty people. Yeah. <laughs> and I was just like, this doesn't need to be the prettiest person. Like, why don't we like, and it was all, you know, it, it doesn't need to be the same person that everybody else is casting. Yeah. Like, let's let's open up our minds a little bit more and let somebody else get something on and their resume. That's what um, I also kind of see is then we do see examples of non-conventionally attractive people. But then that one person just gets called in for everything because we found one we found one person who's not conventionally attractive, but audiences seem to respond to them. So like, let's let, let's go to them when we need a, an ugly person, you know, and, and it's also and it's also a game of are we making the audience feel better because it's somebody who doesn't have as present of uh, like a sexuality yeah. and being able to like write stories and, and romantic stories and sexual stories that aren't just for um, the same people. I was gonna say the cast of Bridgerton, but fucking Bridgerton. I watched Bridgerton um with uh my niece, and she like saw a fat girl getting a romantic storyline <laughs> and was just like, Yes, this show. <laughs> yes. Let's let's see what Penelope's deal is. I think it's Penelope. <laughs> but you know, like stuff like stuff like that matters. And of course, Bridgerton is so important because it's bringing people of color into storylines that they haven't gotten to be in, but also let us be, you know, there are lots of people who deserve to have centrality in stories. And I think it is annoying to me that I have to do the work of writing my own story if I want the <laughs> chance to be in it. Yeah. But also I can do it. So yeah. why complain? Yeah. I, I mean, I think there's so much power in writing our own work and um, you know, there is a lot to be said for sometimes you, I've given people opportunities to give me the role. And <laughs> then I turned around and wrote and produced my own thing. And then it mm -hmm. kind of sent a message, you know, I don't know how far reaching this message goes, but, and I think you've done this yourself in your career, you know, um, it sends a message where, you you had the chance to work with me, and then I had to turn around and do it myself. And now I don't want to work with you. you know? <laughs> One of the things that's hard, when you are taught to think of yourself as unworthy, mm -hmm. you can so frequently be like, oh, just getting to work is enough. And yes. sort of, you know, I, like, that has been me for much of my career. But being able to say, oh they don't get my skills unless they're going to do it on my, and not entirely my terms, Yeah, but there just come points where if they want to do it that way, let them work with somebody else. Yeah. What I, what I have to do, if I'm going to spend my time on this, I'm going to spend my time in it 
uh, on a, in a way that I find meaningful and helpful to me and helpful to other people. And I think there's something really nice about getting to slide back and forth between helpful to me and helpful to other people and just sort of say, you know, when I had my talk show, that was really cool. I was at the center of things. That was super fun. Um, But like on the show I'm writing for now, um, being able to advocate for diversity and comedy that doesn't look exactly like it did before and just open people's minds a little bit is really fun. But it will be fun when I am starring in the starring in something at some point in time you know yeah. yes i i've just really enjoyed this thank you guy i had this whole list of questions i asked about two of them because the conversation just took its own shape and form without me needing to follow a path but i do have some closing questions who is your celebrity crush? Oh, um, that is a wonderful question. <laughs> Let's go with Joe Jonas at this moment. That's the best <laughs> that I can come up with. I, 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 um, my answer to this changes every time I'm asked it because I have, I'm, I'm very much a slut and there are lots of yes. people I would be totally easy for where all they'd have to do is just, you know, say yes. And then I say yes, you know, <laughs> <laughs> That's all it takes. Yes. No, no, I just watched It's a Sin. I'm going to change it to Ali Alexander, even though that is not my type at all. That is not my type at all, though I did just name two twinks. Um, but Ali, Ale- <laughs> Ali Alexander uh, was uh, very adorable. Ali Alexander is extremely adorable, a wonderful actor, and I'm friends with Russell T. Davis, who wrote It's a Sin, and told me, um, I don't know if I'm allowed to share this, but told me just how sensational Ali Alexander's audition was um, oh. that like just one of the best auditions he had ever seen so it's so exciting when talented people get to be talented <laughs> I'm I'm so dazzled by Russell T. Davis I think that gay people gay men are scared of honestly representing our experience and I think it gives us stuff that is too self-serious um, and boring like looking and mm. Russell like, not that the things need to be compared, but, like, fucking Cucumber was so good. Like, <laughs> Russell T. Davis is, like, my hero. I'm very impressed that you know him. Yeah, I mean, um, my my partner's very good friends with him, and he actually gave a toast at our wedding, and um, it was after I'd watched, for the first time in my life, I had watched four seasons of Doctor Who, and then uh-huh. the voice of Doctor Who was giving a toast at my <laughs> wedding, using props from Doctor Who, explaining it in very much a Doctor Who kind of way, and I'm like, did Doctor Who just bless our union? <laughs> that was pretty great. That's wonderful. <laughs> I'm going to say my, um, my celebrity crushes I'm going to bring up now um, are... Um, coming to my mind is um, Manny Jacinto from uh, The Good Place. Uh, yes. He could have me any way he wants me. Um, and Eric Andre is an ongoing um, crush for me. Eric Andre. <laughs> I got him to tweet back at me once and I was like, I, I think we're in love now. Um, <laughs> He's it- very funny and very delightful and I never know what's going on. <laughs> I, do you know who the comedian Michelle Buteau is? 
I know I know the name. I'm terrible um, with names unless I want to fuck them, obviously, because I've uh, rattled off all these other names. But <laughs> just when I'm around Eric Andre, I always want Michelle to be there because I know Michelle will manage whatever happens. <laughs> yeah. um, my final question for you is what are your thoughts on ghosts? Oh, I don't believe in ghosts. It kind of doesn't matter to me. There are other things that I believe in. But recently, I'm trying to buy a house in Los Angeles. And recently, I found this house that was, like, cheaper than it should have been. And I found out it was where one of the Manson murders occurred. <laughs> um, it was the the La Bianca house. And I asked my assistant to come with me. And he was like, I am scared of ghosts. <laughs> <laughs> And he did come with me, but then afterwards he was like, uh, something happened to him and he deleted all of the videos he had made at the house and was like, I assumed that I started coughing or whatever it was because the ghosts were after me because we went to the place of their death without respect. <laughs> oh, wow. And um, yes. Uh, so that's my thought on ghosts. I'm pretty sure if our spirits do continue to exist after our death, it is not being mad here it is off on some other journey <laughs> i think I, I i think that's very fair i believe in ghosts but i very much choose to believe in ghosts you know i mean <laughs> I, like alec baldwin gina davis from beetlejuice is probably that's the ghost that i want to exist like yeah. i like that as an idea of just like a gentle haunting of a house a gentle haunting that's a lovely way of putting it now guy um you've done so many wonderful things in your career you've worked on so many wonderful projects what would you like to plug right now people should buy my book my life is a goddess <laughs> available wherever books are sold um there's that and oh and uh, my talk show talk show the game show is available on hbo max um, so please watch it. I, um, I have HBO Max because of Doctor Who, because my, my partner and I needed a show that we could watch together because I pretty much only watch laugh tracks, sitcoms and cartoons before bed. He pretty much only watches dramas and documentaries and somehow Doctor Who spoke to both of us. <laughs> um, what laugh track sitcoms do you watch? Oh, right now... I am watching Frasier because I find it a very soothing show to put on before bed. Um, and then also, I'm, I'm, I, I, I always feel embarrassed to admit this, but it's my truth. I love the show American Dad, the cartoon show uh -huh. American Dad. I don't like Family Guy at all, but I love American Dad. And I, I, I find that to be a distinct difference. <laughs> I have a bunch of friends who wrote for American Dad, and I am currently writing on a Kelsey Grammer show <gasps> with, with Frasier writers. Like, I took the job because I was like, I want to prove I can be in a room with Frasier writers. Um, so <laughs> uh, it's very exciting. Oh, and there was something I had super wanted to... I'm sorry. No <laughs> worries. something so relevant that I was going to say, oh, just that my show, Talk to the Game Show, we did have Pandora Box on it, and Miss Richfield an iconic drag queen of the pre-drag race era. Yes. And I love that drag race has like brought um, drag to like the forefront of people's minds. But there are these queens um, like her and Jackie Beat, um, who like so many people in the Midwest don't know about. Well, Miss Richfield people in the Midwest don't know about it. <laughs> 
She's from the Midwest. But the point is, is like, educate yourself on the prehistory of drag. Oh, yes. You are not a drag expert just by watching Drag Race. There is so much (laughs) in the world of drag that existed before and continues to exist. So um, it's really on you. It's on you to educate yourselves of the the wide breadth of the wonderful world of drag. Um, (laughs) I I have two things to shrink your world and then I'm going to I'm going to leave you be for the day. One is we talked about Shrill ever so briefly. My videographer was one of those cute, adorable twinks on Shrill. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Wow. Liam Krug, he um, he had a line, incroyable, <laughs> where, where the, he's a Gen Zer um, um, uh, mocking John Cameron Mitchell's character as he's like trying desperately to prove that he's still relevant. <laughs> it's a it's a great show, and Lindy tried to figure out a way to have me on it. Uh, I shouldn't have complained about oh, it, don't. but I did. <laughs> but I did think it was very funny where you're like, yeah, and, and and there's space for these adorable twinks. And my videographer just happens to be one of them. <laughs> to, to be fair, I do take up a lot of space. <laughs> like, I'm three to four twinks worth of space. <laughs> um, and then the other thing I was going to say is that a friend of mine, and this is the weirdest, craziest story. I don't even know if it'll make it into the podcast episode, but a friend of mine, his name is Phil Cavanaugh, and he and I met while he was in L.A., because he has a friend who wrote for Frasier and most of the episodes that are like a French comedy of errors, you know, the yes. ones that resemble Moliere. Um, yes, were written by this guy whose name I don't know, but he also... Are you thinking of Joe Keenan? <laughs> I'm not. I'm not sure. I don't I even know pretty if... pretty sure you're thinking of Joe Keenan. Maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> he also wrote a series of novels. Um, yes, Joe Keenan. S- yes, starring... <laughs> the main character's name is Philip Cavanaugh. And oh, really? his life is pretty much what my friend Phil's life has been to this point. And he found this... He randomly discovered this series of novels and he was like how did this person write my life into these novels without us ever meeting and so then he reached out to him flew to LA and like spent a week just like getting to know him and then like finding out how somehow he wrote it it was like that movie Stranger Than Fiction with Will Ferrell and (laughs) <laughs> That's adorable. And Emma Thompson. It, it's real. It happened. Yeah. Um, so now he's writing his novel, his memoir about how he discovered his life in novel form. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, thank you so much, Guy. You, you're always a wonderful guest to have. I'm I'm so lucky to count you as one of my friends, and I I, I thank my lucky stars every day that um, that Nick Sahoya um, <laughs> co- crossed our paths together. It's it's thank- one of the few things I can I can thank him for. So <laughs> thank you so much. This was very delightful. Thank you, Guy. Um, Yes. <laughs> Even if it didn't involve watching an episode of Futurama. Last time we did a podcast <laughs> together, I got to watch an episode of Futurama. This time, not so much. Well, no one's stopping you, okay? <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, uh, guys. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening to Hijinks today here on the Forever Dog and Moguls of Media Network. My name is Jinx Monsoon, and we have a new episode every Wednesday. So make sure to search for Hijinks on your favorite podcast app and hit subscribe. You can follow me at The Jinx on Instagram or Jinx Monsoon anywhere else. And I'll see you next Wednesday for some more Hijinks.
forever. To listen to hijinks ad free and one day early, sign up for Forever Dog Plus at foreverdogpodcasts.com slash plus. Make sure to follow at Forever Dog Team and at Mom Podcasts on social and rate and review Hijinks five stars on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hijinks is produced by Forever Dog and Moguls of Media, aka Mom, hosted by me, Jinx Monsoon, produced by Big Dipper, editing and sound design by Will Pitts. Executive produced by Willem Belli, Alaska Thunderfuck, Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey.